This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. Visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 76, recorded on June 14th, 2019. I'm your guest host, Ryan Roberts from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. We're excited to have two guests with us. First, we have Rebecca Johnson. Becky is a physician in the Multicare Health System and Good Samaritan Hospital from Tacoma, Washington. She has a specialty in the care of adolescents and young adults with cancer. We also have Rebecca Jacobson. Becca is a survivor and currently works within the same healthcare system as a social worker. She's been a leader within this adolescent and young adult advisory system that both of them have helped develop together. First, I wanna, I wanna have you guys tell us a little bit about your stories. Tell us where you came from. Dr. Johnson, why don't you tell us a little bit about what got you into the work that you do? I did my residency in internal medicine and pediatrics because I was pretty much interested in everything. And (laughs) I had always... Too um, hard to decide. Yeah, it was too hard to decide. That was the easiest. And um, I had always been interested in genetics since college. And so I wanted to do a fellowship in clinical genetics. um, And I did that. Um, On my way... uh, there during my second year of residency, I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 27. Um, and I had a mastectomy, um, several months of chemotherapy, lost my hair, um, mostly kept on working and fortunately survived and uh, was cured. And that took me a few years to process. But by the end of my first year of, of genetics fellowship, I was talking one night to my sister who is an MD-PhD now, and she was a student um, at that point and working in a lab and uh, shadowing with one of her mentors who is a pediatric sarcoma doc. And she said, oh, I was, you know, back in clinic today and I had the best time. I saw this patient, his hair is growing back and he gave me a hug around my leg. And I thought, that sounds really fun. (laughs) And, um, you know, I thought, well, there's a lot. That part is really fun. Yeah, that part's good. And I thought, well, there's a lot of genetics in cancer and actually, you know, I've learned a lot about cancer by going through that journey myself. And so I um, walked across the street and I said, hey, you know, talk to the, the pediatric <laughs> hemoc residency director and, or fellowship director. And he said, um, you know, oh, we've just had an opening come up. And so I... Conveniently. Yeah, conveniently. And um, so I, I went and did um, a pediatric hemoc fellowship not even knowing that AYA was a thing. Yeah. And then... Uh, when, we, should, we should mention, so we'll mention throughout this talk, AYA, which mm-hmm. stands for... Adolescent. You want to tell us what that means? Yeah. AYA is an acronym for Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology, and uh, this is the group of patients diagnosed with cancer between 15 and 39 years of age who have a lot of distinctive medical and psychosocial needs compared to both kids and older adults with cancer. Yeah, good. And so you yourself were in any way. So. Yeah, and so um, later on when I was interviewing for jobs, I went to Seattle Children's and um, was talking about the you know the various options for uh, clinical uh, focus. And they said, well, you know, there's this new thing people are talking about called 
AYA and do you have any interest in that? And I was like, oh, wait, do I ever? (laughs) Yes. I'm an expert. (laughs) Yeah. And that was really neat because at the time there were zero programs, you know, designed for patients that age and, and very few clinical services or resources. And so to, you know, have the opportunity to build some of those has been really fun. And that has become a career. Yeah. Good. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you get here? Well, and this is Becca for all those who are listening. Um, So I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease when I was 17. And it was a month before my 18th birthday. And because it was a month before my 18th birthday, I had the opportunity to choose to be in pediatrics or be an adult, which I think a lot of people don't get that experience. Usually you're thrown into one world or the other, even though the AYA age range spans all the way up to 39, you know, the vast majority end up being treated in the adult world. But the adult world was so terrifying. It was such a scary place. Like you walked in and like it, it was a, it was one of the, the centers. It was an infusion center. I think that I had walked into and everyone was over the age of 60. Every single person had white hair and they all were sitting in a circle with like their neon chemo bags, like hanging. And it just looked like a place that people went to die. It was such a terrifying thing for being a 17 year old. And I had long blonde hair. And um, at that time in my life, it felt like it was the only redeeming quality I had was my hair, you know? And when you're young, I feel like those kind of things matter so much too. And so just going there was so scary. And then I went over to Mary Bridge Children's Hospital. So it was a 30-minute drive from my house instead of a two-minute drive, you know. Um, but that 30-minute drive when I walked in, they were – it was so – it was wonderful, but definitely not catered to a teenager, not to a 17-year-old, you know, because everything was so little and small. Like, I didn't even fit in my bed. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting in, in the bed and they were like, oh, well, you don't really fit. And it was so awkward. It was very clear that like I wasn't, I didn't belong in that world either. And like I, you didn't you belong know, either place. Right? No, not at all. Not at all. I think both places were very, um, were kind of an overwhelming option. But I know in the kids world, they were like, hey, for every 10 IV pokes, you get um, a gift card to Toys R Us. <laughs> And I was like, well, anyone can enjoy that. (laughs) I can handle that. And I remember they said that they would use freezing spray um, before they gave me my IVs, which I know is now something that is not done in most places. But I remember them like they lured me with their freezing spray. Um, But I'm really, really grateful. I'm so grateful. And to have had that more close attention from a provider um, because my, um, because that lower patient staffing ratio in a children's hospital. Like I just got a lot more attention and my doctor, he really, he is a wonderful doctor for AYA care, Dr. Robert Irwin. He had just done so much and he, he was reading the book. Um, he had a daughter who actually ended up getting cancer down the road. Um, but at the time he had a daughter who's just um, a year younger than me and he was reading Twilight because she was reading Twilight. And so with the AYA patients, I remember when I met him, he's like, oh, are you by chance reading Twilight? And I was like, yes. How did you know? And I just trusted him implicitly. I mean, it was just the weirdest thing. Like, I just was like, you can, i sure you can be completely in control of this. Like, it was, it built an instant bond. And it's a moment that, like, my mother remembers so well. We were just talking about it a few days ago. Like, that going that extra step to to understand an AYA instead of just being, like, a pediatric oncologist. Like, he knew that he, it was his responsibility to treat all the way. 
you know, and I really appreciate that. And a lot of us who, who have worked together over the years have all been survivors that were patients of Dr. Irwin. Today, you guys shared with us a process that you've been through that was based on some research work that you've done and that you've gone through together, which is kind of interesting. So first, I have to ask, how did you two meet? We met at a first distance trip. First Descents is a nonprofit that serves young adults diagnosed with cancer in the adolescent and young adult age range, and uh, then they have to be 18 to 39 at the time of their participation. And so uh, when I moved down to Mary Bridge Hospital in 2014, one of the first things I set up uh, as a you know, an initial step in developing psychosocial support mm-hmm. services for teens and young adults was to renew uh, a partnership um, mm-hmm. with uh, with that organization. And uh, they do weekend trips so that uh, they'll take patients from the whole area and, you know, go sea kayaking or rock climbing. And so the very first trip that, that we ever had, I think it was in 2015, right? I met Becca and she uh, is a social worker for uh, our hospital. And so it was within the system. And uh, later that year, I began writing a PCORI grant, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute Patient Engagement Grant to form an Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Council, uh, looking at the specific healthcare needs of teens and young adults treated at community healthcare centers. And we needed uh, patient representation on the council. And the way that the, the grant is set up is that you would have a lead patient representative or two of them. And so we invited Becca to be one of them. And then she helped recruit actually everyone else who went on that trip. <laughs> she <laughs> called them all up and they all agreed to, to be on the council. So that was actually a major way that we recruited for the patient engagement grant that went then uh, ran from 2016 to 2018 and, and uh, generated lots of data that we talked about today. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's super important just to mention that whenever um, doing projects or whenever you're trying to get a group of AYAs together, I've seen it go poorly often, um, or you have really low turnout, it seems, when the way you go about it is sending things out in the mail, like flyers in the mail don't usually, they don't get a ton of responses often. Um, and getting a call from like the social worker in your office isn't usually the something that works super well. But it seems like it, it meant a lot to everybody to have an adult, another AYA calling them and telling them like, hey, I want you to come do this. Like, I trust these people and I want you to be there. And I think that, so I would really encourage like anyone who's trying to think of a way to help do psychosocial support for AYAs. Like if you can find young adult champions that can help lead that, I think that that's really, it's really helpful to have. It's definitely a group that seem that trusts each other more than they trust us. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you found through that process. What are what are the needs of the of our adolescents and young adults with cancer that, that are different from from our little kids or our or our older adults? Well, there are many. First of all, it's just a terrible time of life to be diagnosed with cancer. Teens and young adults are moving through so many different milestones at such a rapid rate. So they have graduations and they have, you know, they're getting engaged and their friends are getting married. And, uh, there are a lot of, a lot of events that, you know, if, if you got, you know, sick for a year and couldn't go to school or sick for a year and couldn't go to your best friend's wedding or, you know, somebody's baby shower, these things have 
a huge impact on people. And, and so teens and young adults tend to feel like they're kind of left behind, you know, getting their health care while their whole peer group is, is moving forward. And that's psychologically really hard. Traumatic, right? Yeah. I mean, it's genuinely traumatic. Really traumatic. And actually, uh, 40% of teens and young adults have moderate or severe post-traumatic stress symptoms a year after their diagnosis. So it's a very real struggle and, and a very big problem. Um, on an ongoing basis. And, you know, even years after a cancer diagnosis, people diagnosed with cancer just in that age range have ongoing uh, increased rates of, you know, suicide attempts, completed suicides and, and psych hospitalizations, unfortunately. So I really, I really appreciated in the um, process that you used to do this, that you talked about making it an, an emic process, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that was and why you chose to do that? Sure. So emic is a behavioral science term that refers to research or observations coming from the group um, that is being studied themselves. Uh, so it's like, you know, we feel that these are our problems as opposed to the opposite of that would be etic, which is when an outside group looks in to a group and says, well, we think that these things might be going on for you and they might, you know, design a survey or, you know, ask questions from their own perspective that would assess whether what they thought was happening when they looked in was really true. And these days in America and other countries as well, there's a a big focus on getting uh, patients themselves at the table when research studies are being done or when data is being collected about things like unmet needs because it's really important not to you know build your own assumptions and then say to the patient yes no is this true um, but actually to have the patient sitting at the table and see if the whole thrust of the discussion is an accurate representation of, of what they experienced. Yeah. So Becca essentially your group Mm-hmm. came together to make recommendations to the physicians mm-hmm. and and to the hospital. What was that like? Was that empowering? Yeah. Um, it was something that had been weighing on my mind for a long time. I felt like, because I, I think that most providers are genuinely altruistic. Like, I think that big people go into medicine wanting to help people, usually. Um, and so I figured they that people really wanted to help, but... No, I had never seen AYAs have a um, platform or a way that they could communicate directly to providers. I feel like providers often get their information and their recommendations from the literature, you know, and from like peer review journals and things like that. That's where they're going to get their recommendations. So it's interesting trying to figure out how you can get your recommendations into what they're reading um, or what they're doing. And so I think in um, the, so we had created a video to help um, tell providers what we want our care to look like um, as as patients talking to providers. And I think it's been a really great tool because now we can send it to different hospital systems and to, you know, and but it's under the guise of this was created by a hospital. Like, I mean, it was created by a, a hospital system and it kind of, it. I think it makes it more um, palatable to providers to be told that way. What, what you want. From no, them. I agree. And we should mm-hmm. mention that one output of this research has been a video that we just watched that's a, yeah. <laughs> an educational tool for, for physicians, right? Yeah. I, w- I would also say one thing that came out of the discussion earlier, I, I thought it was interesting that 
while I think it's fairly well defined what the needs of our AYA patients are, getting a good handle on how well we as an institution or, or as, as a region are meeting the needs of those patients is a harder thing to get a grasp on. And so I think it's almost as if feedback from our own groups would be valuable in, in every community. I think that's true. And as somebody who's been trying to put together AYA programs and services for years now, I think it's kind of amazing locally, you know, in every program I've worked at or seen, uh, as well as nationally in the literature, the gaps continue and people have a lot of unmet needs. You know, if you look at Brad Zebrak's uh, work on, on young adult uh, unmet needs, even, you know, five or more years after his initial studies, he looked again and, you know, still 40% of people have uh, unmet uh, needs for counseling or for information support a year after their cancer diagnosis, you know, even when for a decade we've been rapidly building AYA services throughout the United States. So in the literature is there. And I think even locally, there are patients who might miss uh, being involved in the services that you think your hospital provides, you know, if they're in isolation and can't get out to attend a group, if, you know, they don't read the the language mm -hmm. of your brochures, if, you know, for many reasons, you might think you're providing a good clinical service, and it might not actually be going out to every person in your hospital, or your catchment area. So Becca, of the recommendations that your group made, tell us some of the recommendations that you're most passionate about. Well, it's interesting how your areas of focus change, I think, over time. And I think if you would have asked me years ago, I would have said much different things than I say today. I feel like now, after being in the survivorship world for, for quite some time now, um, about 10 years, like I'm very, very passionate about survivorship mm -hmm. and the lack of support in survivorship. Because for people like me, like I finished treatment and I moved to a different state to start college, but I had a port still that needed to be taken care of monthly. So then it was up to me to find an oncologist in the city that I was, at, you know, at school um, to have them deal with that because I think that we were a little nervous to take it out immediately. Anyway, so um, so I think survivorship problems have, have become very, very important to me. And then fertility has been something that in the moment – um, in the moment, I think AYAs, you can feel kind of invincible a little bit, I think. And I don't, a lot of people in the moment might not care as much about fertility, like because for some people, it's not on the forefront of their mind when they're 17 or as a 21 year old male, like one of my friends, like he, you know, wasn't on the forefront of his mind, but you better believe that there'll probably come a time in their life where it really matters a lot. And they're going to be mad at you if you didn't talk about it a lot. And so well, sometimes I, even you know, for physicians, right? I think yeah. we, we focus on trying to fix the problem at hand exactly, without thinking about the problems that we create by doing so. Oh, absolutely. And now over the years, I have met so many people who were made sterile without ever knowing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really scary thing. And so, and then for, for, and for me and my journey, um, because of just the things that I experienced in the chemo and the radiation, I've now had to do IVF. 
and hope and you know you just hope and pray that it even works on you but I'm also so grateful that my doctors were willing like they did tell me like hey we're gonna do like while they didn't offer like fertility preservation for me they did make sure to say like hey we're gonna do everything to preserve your fertility like because we want you to be able to be a mother like and they they really like had that and so um but I wish things would have been offered or discussed, but I know that with my particular situation, it wasn't supposed to have a lasting effect, even though it has proven to, it would appear to have a very strong effect because I have very few eggs. I have extremely, (laughs) extremely few eggs left. So they're precious. Yes, they are. They're very, they're numbered unto me. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So it's pretty scary. Um, It's a pretty big thing. (laughs) I think you mentioned that not even knowing what answer or questions to ask. For as a teenager. Oh, yeah. And then not being separated from your parents. Oh, yeah. That was another big one. I think that sexuality and fertility are the two big topics. If you ask a room full of survivors, things that they are pretty upset about or things that that matter a lot to them. Everybody on our whole council of like 20 people or, you know, not a single person had ever been asked about sexuality. And the entire group, like, it just seemed like I'm like, you're missing a person's, an entire system of a person. Like, you know, you would address their endocrine system or, you know, you would address their digestive system, but let's completely ignore their reproductive system. You know, it just seems, it seems like such a shame. And so if you asked any of us, all of us are extremely passionate about fertility and about, um, about having conversations about sexuality and, and not doing it in front of parents because that is often a problem is that it's brought up in front of the parents or it's um avoided altogether because the parents are always in the room well we should recognize that this is the age at which sexual maturity and and many of those early developmental milestones are 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 achieved for Mm -hmm. these patients and so they're not just cancer patients, but they're also going through all of these other things that normal teenagers <laughs> go through and, and experience and do and boyfriends and girlfriends and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. Yeah. Just because nobody wants to think about it doesn't mean that, yeah. that it's not actually yeah. Yeah, normal, normal behavior. And, you know, in many other ways as pediatric oncologists and, you know, it's true for, for adult medical oncologists too, we try to support normal activities that people want to do you know if they if they have a you know a concert they really want to go to an event they really want to go to we try to try to get them there and you know the same should be true for sexuality and other kind of normal activities for that age group it's psychologically very important i think to discuss and physically as well yeah we wondered how it would go over if you hosted a like a some sort of a discussion <laughs> how many ayas you could a get there if you said party. like let's talk about sex <laughs> and just see who shows up i think it would be a very interesting conversation well so. and there's no reason that we can't have those conversations right mm-hmm. there's no reason we can't have them it's how we all got here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We want to thank you guys for coming out today, and uh, we appreciate your uh, contributions in, in helping us to understand how to better serve those patients that, that we see that, that fall into those groups. It can be challenging sometimes, right? Sometimes we have to navigate across multiple medical systems, and, and sometimes patients in that age group can sometimes have trust issues that challenge them. That was another thing that we talked about a little bit today. They deserve uh, that kind of care that respects who they are and where they are in life. And we appreciate your efforts to help us 
remember that and to keep that in front and to help us understand what you guys wanted and and are paying it forward now with your patience. It's been a it's been a great conversation. And with that, it looks like that's it for this week. So I want to thank you, Becky and Becca, and remind our listeners that we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and to discuss your comments and questions. Just send us a note at twepo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at KidsOncDoc and find more episodes on the Podbeam app or at solvingkidscancer.org under the heading The Latest. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thank you for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.